you're listening to the Deeper Christian Bible Study Series in the Book of Ephesians. Thank you for joining me, Nathan Johnson, on an in-depth, verse-by-verse study of this incredible book by Paul. Now, let's dive into the lesson for today. Uh, What I want to do this morning is to jump in and look at the prologue, or at least what I'm calling the prologue, which is the first two verses uh, of the book of Ephesians. Now, again, just as a quick review, uh, an epistle is a formal correspondence that is meant to be read out loud to an audience. In other words, uh, Ephesians is an epistle. So here is Paul. He's writing this letter to this church in Ephesus. And so it's a formal correspondence. It's not like our modern-day emails, right? And our our modern-day emails, we just kind of write this little thing. We don't edit it. We just kind of say send, and we hope it makes sense. But if you think about what they had to do back then, writing was very expensive. And if you had to you know, actually write it down on, a, on something that was going to last. So it's very expensive. You had to choose your words carefully, right? They had to think through this thing. Um, and so it, it was a well-crafted correspondence. They had a point. There's a reasoning behind it. It wasn't just, hey, let me just talk. There was a, hey, I have an intention. There's a purpose for my writing. So here's this church in Ephesus. They get this letter. Oh, look, it's from Paul. And so what would they do? They would gather together, and someone would stand up, and they would begin to read the letter. And this is, again, you got to remember, this is a very oral culture. Uh, so it's not like, even though they would copy it, and a lot of them, would, you know, they may get copies themselves, the idea is you would listen to it, and as you're listening to it, you begin to memorize it. You would think through it, and you would hold it in your mind. So this is this, is this idea of an epistle. So, <clears throat> uh, and the reason that's even important, as, as, be, as we begin to walk through this, uh, and, and I would encourage you as you read this through every single week, begin to listen to how Paul's using language. Because there are certain key themes or certain languages that he uses over and over and over again. And it's like he's weaving these ideas through or he's bringing a point up here, he brings it up here, and he concludes it over here almost as a way to give a holding tank to someone's memory as they're listening. It's actually rather intriguing to me. Now, Ephesians itself, as we mentioned last week, is split into two key sections. Uh, you have the first three chapters, which is the, like, the theological section. It's all about position. And Paul says, you have a position. You'll never guess what your position is. It's in Jesus. And 30 times in those first three chapters, Paul uses the language of in Christ, in him, in whom. That, hey, you are to be seated in Jesus Christ. Why? Because your position is in him. That you're never to, never to get up from that position. That from this point forward in your Christian life, you are to be seated in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he is your position. Now, chapters 4 through 6 is the outworking of that. In other words, if my seated position is Jesus, well, what does my life look like practically? Now, oddly, Paul uses language of this is your walking lifestyle. So it's almost like you are to be seated in Christ, and at the same time, you're supposed to be walking this out. Well, how is that going to work? Again, my cheesy illustration is the electric wheelchair. Uh, you sit in an electric wheelchair, and you're seated in the electric wheelchair. Oh, it's probably a comfy one, right? Because, hey, this is, you're gonna be, this is your seat. This is the lazy boy, you know, electric wheelchair version. Why? Because you're never to get up from this wheelchair. Your seated position is a wheelchair. And yet, while you're in the wheelchair, there's this toggle switch that drives you forward, and there's movement, there is activity. You're doing things, but you're doing them from a seated position in Jesus. Is that making sense? That's kind of neat. Uh, So that's how Paul breaks up the book. Now, again, I want to start walking through this book with you, and we're not going to get very far today. We're not going to get very far any day, but over time, those are, hey, we are going to finally get through this book 10 years from now. 
maybe. <clears throat> I want to look at the prologue section. This is the introductions, if you will, uh, which are found in the first two verses. Listen to what Paul says uh, to the church in Ephesus. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read it one more time. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this is obviously a typical standard greeting for Paul. He uses this language in a lot of his books. And if you look at the typical uh, formal correspondence back in his day, uh, this was very common. Uh, you would give a little introduction of who you are, you, you write, or you, you talk about who you're writing to, and you kind of give him a blessing or a little greeting. And Paul does that. He says, hey, I'm Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And he's kind of establishing his credentials, if you will. He says, hey, this is who I'm writing to. Oh, the saints and the faithful in Ephesus. And then he, again, in verse 2, gives this blessing, this uh, kind of this overarching uh, hello and hi, how are you kind of stuff by saying grace and peace to you. I just want to look at verse 1. <laughs> We're not going to get very far today. Uh, but it's pretty neat. Uh, Paul begins by saying again, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, we know that Paul spent about three years in Ephesus. He had visited a couple of times. And so he knows these people rather well. But isn't it intriguing that Paul actually gives credentials of why he's writing this letter? In other words, he says, here I am. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, not by my own will. I didn't, I didn't choose this. This was by the will of God. And just for you nerdy people, I want to walk through a few of these words with you. Uh, the word apostle in this passage uh, it shows up 79 times in the New Testament, 35 of which is in Paul's writings. So Paul uses this language uh, obviously very uh, significantly, or in the majority of sense, in the majority of times. Now, if you go back to old classical Greek, this word, apostolos, has this idea of a commander of a naval expedition. In other words, here's this commander of a fleet, he goes off, and he's in this battle kind of idea. That was an apostle. As you move into more of like the Hellenistic Greek culture, which would be more the time of Jesus and Paul, <clears throat> uh, this idea of apostolos it came to mean a person who was commissioned and authorized by one of the gods. In other words, if you think about this in Greek or Roman culture, here's this pantheon of gods, and one of the gods say, hey, go, and I want you to be a messenger for me. And that person would have been called an apostolos. Now, as you come into the New Testament specifically, uh, what you begin to find with the New Testament writers is that they're using a Greek language that is secular by nature. Right? I mean, it's, it's a secular culture. It's Roman. It's Greek influenced. And what they begin to do is they begin to put uh, meaning, if you will, into certain words. So though the word apostolos would have had this idea of, oh, the God sent you out as a messenger. And that would have been understood in that culture. You realize that doesn't make sense in the New Testament because we don't have a pantheon of gods who are sending out messengers, right? <laughs> Nod your heads, right? <laughs> right? We, don't, we don't have this whole group of gods who are commissioning things. There is, there's only one God, so, so what do we do with this? Thank you. Amen. Amen. So, so what do you do with this language then that is secular by nature with all these gods? So the New Testament writers begin to package, if you will, some meaning behind certain key Greek words, which is kind of fun. So in the New Testament then, this idea of an apostolos kind of had a dual sense. One, it had this idea of being an eyewitness of the life of Jesus. 
So we have 12 disciples who are called the 12 apostles. Why? Because they spent time day in and day out with Jesus Christ, seeing how Jesus talked and ate his hot dogs and, and how he lived and, and how he did his miracles and how he did, right? They lived with Jesus for three years. And they said, oh, you, you are an eyewitness of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And so there's that whole idea of being an eyewitness of Jesus. But another idea, which also can be an apostle, is this idea of a delegate or a messenger. In other words, they were an ambassador of sorts uh, that were sent forth with an orders or a message. Uh, so think about a king. Here's a king. Oh. And he says, I have a message to deliver to that place over there. So he grabs an ambassador and says, I am literally going to give you my authority to go take a message. And when you speak the message to that group of people, it's as if I'm speaking that message to that people. And they are commissioned as an ambassador. It's kind of that idea. That here is God, he's sitting out a delegate, he's sitting out a messenger. Uh, a lot of times this word apostle in the New Testament, uh, it can mean like a church planter, which obviously was what Paul was doing. Right? He would go to these places, he would say, well, I got, a, I got some great truth for you, listen to this. And he would begin to plant a church in whatever city he was in. So all of that's kind of contained in this concept of apostle, depending on how it's being used. So when you look at what Paul is saying here then, interestingly, he's saying he's not only an eyewitness to the resurrection life of Jesus, well, he was. Now, he didn't spend three years of ministry with Jesus. We understand that. But hey, on the Damascus Road, the big light shine fell off the horse or donkey, right? And uh, he was blind, that whole thing. He was an eyewitness to the life and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But perhaps more importantly, Paul was sent. He was commissioned with an authority and a responsibility to deliver a message. So here's Paul at the beginning of our book saying, whoa, hey, God is throwing something in my life, and I'm an apostle. I have a message for you sent by God. Hey, you've got to listen to this. Now, it's interesting that in, in the English translation, it says Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Of Jesus Christ. He's not just, he's not just an apostle. He's an apostle of someone very specific. And who is that? Oh, it's Jesus Christ. Uh, that word of, uh, it's actually attached to the word Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is in the genitive in the Greek, which shows possession. Now, don't get confused here. Stay with me. So this idea that here's Paul an apostle, but the apostleship belongs to someone. Who does that belong to? Jesus. So Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, this becomes really, really important in the passage because what it's suggesting is that Paul's not just going off as a messenger on his own free will. Paul's not just going off as a messenger to do whatever he wants to do or say whatever he wants to say. Paul literally is a messenger. He's a delegate by Jesus Christ. Literally of, he is owned. The message is of Jesus. Is this making sense? And this idea of the of is referring to the source, the focus, and the identity of that apostleship. So Paul wasn't just any messenger eyewitness. And it's important to recognize that Paul wasn't just an apostle for Jesus Christ, like he's doing an activity for Jesus. Woo, is it God lucky? But rather, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, that he was sent and commissioned by God himself with a message. So this entire focus, the source, the identity of his life was wrapped up in one single place. It's in the ownership, which is Jesus. Wouldn't it be neat if your life was of Jesus and not just for Jesus? See, so many of us in the, in the church today have this mentality of like, I'm a Christian for Jesus. Oh, isn't he lucky? Yeah, why did God give me talent? Well, so I can do things for him. 
Why did God give me a great singing voice? This isn't truth, so I'm just making this up. But why did God give me a great singing voice? Well, it's so I can sing great songs. I can go, ooh, Jesus. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need your singing voice. He can make rocks sound better than you. Right? And rocks do sound better than me, so that makes sense. Right? He doesn't need your talent. Now, he can use your talent, but this isn't, hey, I, hey I'm a Christian, and I'm going to live my life for Jesus. Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be interesting if I could just be of Jesus, that I'm his, I'm his possession, and I'm not just trying to do things for him? Isn't he lucky? And yes, there's, all, there's, there's obedience, and yes, there's things you're supposed to do. I, I fully agree with all that. But the, but the emphasis here is not me going out and trying to do things for him in my own resource, my own ability, and my own talent. Because you realize the moment I begin to do those things and it's separated from the source, which is God himself, there's a serious problem in my Christianity. Because that's not Christianity. Because you need the life source, the spirit of God within you, bringing about the activities of your life. And yes, you're going to do a lot of things for Jesus, but, the, but the, the emphasis or the foundation of that is not doing things for him, it's being of him and getting tight with him. Does that make sense? And wouldn't it be amazing if the identity of our life was not doing things for, but being a person of? I think that would change how we live. And the activities will still be there. Hey, you're, the, the obedience will still be there. But now you're being empowered to do those things properly. I think we call those people Christians. And Paul says, I'm not just an apostle for Jesus, so I'm not just going off and doing these message things. I'm not just building churches. I'm not just declaring things. Isn't God lucky that he has me in his service? This is, wow, do you recognize that these, this apostleship, the message that I'm bringing, actually belongs to him? And he is commissioning me. He is sending me. He is the resource. He is the source. He's the engine. He is the life behind what I am doing. Uh, that whole language of the of in uh, of Jesus Christ, Paul uses that same language all over the place. L- listen, listen to what Paul says in Galatians two twenty. <clears throat> he says, "I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me." He says in Philippians one twenty one, "For me to live is Christ, and to die." Is game. See, my whole life is wrapped up in one single thing. It's Jesus Christ. I'm of him. And yes, I'm going to do things for him, but the foundation of what I'm doing is all out of this idea of being of Jesus Christ. In Colossians, man, Paul uses that language all over the place. Uh, he talks about be, uh, Christ in you, which is the hope of glory, that we are complete in Jesus, that we, are, that we are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly because he is our life. And is to have in all things the preeminence. See, Jesus is the big deal, folks. And your life is, is to be defined and wrapped up in the reality of Jesus. Now, that's further emphasized by the fact that Paul goes on to say that this apostleship of Jesus Christ is by the will of God. Uh, this word, the will of God, it shows an expression or an inclination of pleasure toward that which is liked, pleases, or creates joy. Isn't that awesome? In other words, the will of God is not a drab. The will of God is not a thumb on your back. And the will of God is not a, oh, bummer. I've got to do the will of God. Do you realize the will of God is something exciting? 
It's not something we have to do. It's something we get to do. So tell your faces. Right? This is exciting stuff. Hey, this isn't like, well, bummer. Here I am, Paul, an apostle of Jesus. I didn't get a choice in this. It's by God's will. I mean, I begged him. I said, no, no, no. And he said, yes, yes, yes. Fine. See, that's not in the passage. See, what's in the passage is Paul saying, wow, do you realize it is God's pleasure, it is his joy that I am his apostle? That God is delighting in this. It is giving him pleasure, which means I should receive pleasure in this. That as I begin to walk in the will of God, not only is God having the pleasure of this, I'm getting the pleasure of this. Uh, you can even see this in verse 5. Paul's beginning to list a whole bunch of uh, blessings, which we're going to get to pretty soon. And in verse 5, he says these blessings are all culminating in this idea of according to the good pleasure of his will. Do you know why God bestows blessings? Not because he has to. It's just because he wants to. It's just who he is. It just gives him delight and pleasure. He just loves to pour forth his life. And why is Paul an apostle? Not because he has to. And yeah, it's true. He may not have had a choice in the matter. But this isn't a like, oh, bummer. I'm, a, I'm an apostle. This is, wow, look at what God has done. Look at how he's called me. Look at what, how he's using me in this world today. I am an apostle by his delight. It is his good pleasure. It is, it is his just, oh, he is so excited that I'm an apostle. Woo, I am an apostle. I'm excited too. It's that idea. Wouldn't it be neat to live in that? Now, after Paul establishes his credentials, he moves in and talks to whom he's speaking to. He says at the end of verse 1, to the saints who are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. It's important to note that he's not talking to two groups of people. He's not talking to, oh, the saints. And then he's also talking to the faithful. Because the only way you're ever going to be a saint is if you're faithful. And if you're faithful, guess what we call you? A saint. So it's the same group of people it's the, same, it's the same church, it's the same, hey, it's the same individuals, and he's just giving them two different names. He says, hey, you are both the saints who are in Ephesus, and you're also the faithful in Christ Jesus. So let's look at these really quickly. Uh, the word there, saint, it's the idea, or it's the Greek word, agios. Uh, in the Greek, it comes from the same root word for holiness, or holy. And the word itself contains the idea of holding tight to and cherishing purity and holiness and righteousness. See, it's all about sacredness. It's being wrapped up and being physically pure and morally blameless. Now, this word saint or holy or, or set apart ones uh, relates to purity from defilement, which can be seen throughout the Old Testament, as God commanded the Israelites to abstain from certain things, such as dead bodies. But get this, as we move into the understanding of holiness and saint, we begin to see that it has the concept of being morally pure, upright, blameless in heart and life, virtuous, holy, and set apart. Do you know what group of people he's writing to? It's the ones who are living holy, upright, honorable, set apart lives. In other words, they're Christians. That this idea of being holy or, or set apart, you realize, means you look different than the culture around you. That you're actually becoming like God. He is holy. And you are called, commanded, to be holy as he is holy. That, that you're not to look like the people around you. You're, that the culture is not to define you. What defines you? Him. And so you've separated yourself out, and you're not just morally pure in that sense of holy, 
But hey, you're, you're pursuing righteousness. Hey, you're living with integrity. Hey, that your life is marked by something different than what marks the culture. Well, what marks your life? Jesus. So guess what your life begins to look like? His. And what do we call that group of people? Saints. Now, we don't use that term very often. I don't show up at church and say, oh, dear Saint Eric, Saint Dan, right? I don't use that language. That sounds just weird, right? It sounds like dead people. <clears throat> but Paul is not talking about a, people, a group of people who are dead and therefore saints. He's talking to a group of people who are alive as they ought to be alive. Saints are not dead people, folks. These are people who are alive. If anybody's alive, it's this group of people. Because they're Christians. That they are holy, they're set apart, they're upright. They're righteous. Now, this idea of holiness or this idea of being set apart, you recognize it's not a one-time experience. This isn't, hey, come to the altar, bump your head, woo, you're a saint, and you never have to do anything again. It's interesting if I travel and I speak at a church. Do you know how how much that thought process has invaded our churches? I see all these people who have, well, I accepted Jesus when I was seven. I butt my head twice when I was, you know, 15. And hey, I'm, I'm in good. I'm just coasting along, just waiting to die to go to heaven. That idea is all over the church. And it's like I look, look at these people going, what, what are you talking about? This isn't, well, I'm a saint and I do nothing else. You recognize that saint is a one-time experience. If you're going to be a saint, you constantly live as a saint. And yes, when, you're, and when we're dead, we're, we'll probably finally have arrived, maybe. <laughs> but until then, you, you need sanctification. Hey, you need to be made more holy. Hey, God needs to deepen what he's doing in your life. He, he needs to change your life. And this isn't a one-time deal. This is day by 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 day. At least it is for me. Not so sure about Dan McConaughey. He may have arrived. But everybody else, I think we've all, we need Jesus. Don't we? Amen. Now, it's also interesting to note that Paul's referring to this group in the church in Ephesus as saints. Do you realize they have not been Christians very long? I mean, at most, maybe three or four years. Let's even say five. Let's even say ten years. This isn't, well, we'll watch your life, and if, after 50 years, we might call you a saint. This is, hey, if, if you're living in the life of Jesus, guess what we get to call you? Saint. Because you have the life of Jesus. And so Paul is writing to this group who are in Jesus Christ, who are holy and pure and set apart in this little place called Ephesus. He says, hey, I'm talking to that group. Yeah, that church in Ephesus who all have the life of Jesus, I'm talking to you. And obviously, by extension, he's talking to us. Now, not specifically, right? He's not talking to Nathan in 21st century, right? He has, he has one audience in mind. And yet, while that's still true, he's, he's referring, he's talking, he's giving exhortation to the saints, which I hope you are one. Which then begs the question, how does one become a saint? How do we become holy? Do you realize the secret to holiness is not gritting your teeth? It's not taking cold showers. It's not flicking rubber bands. And there's books that suggest those, these kind of things. Do you know the secret of holiness? Do you, do, you know, do you know how you become holy? You can't. 
That's actually the answer. In fact, Isaiah says the best that you can produce is still but filthy rags. See, I cannot produce holiness in my life. And I can attempt it, I can try it, I can grip my teeth. I can do whatever I can to blow this thing off, and I'll still never be holy. There's this phenomenal story in the Old Testament. Uh, there's this shepherd. One day, he's been, a sh- he's been a shepherd for 40 years. And one day, he took this group of sheep, and he went up on this mountain. He'd probably been on this mountain countless times before. In fact, he was probably here the day before this. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's all these dead twigs and leaves and, and sheep and all the sheep are eating and the sheep do, do stuff after they eat, right? I mean, this place, if you're going to call a place not holy, it's this place. And yet, interestingly, as, as this man is up on this little ridge, there's this bush that begins to burn. And he notices as the bush is burning that it's burning, but it's not burning. I mean, it's burning, but it's not burning up. I mean, it's burning, but not, it, I, somehow it's burning, but not burning, but it's burning, which makes no sense. So he goes to investigate it, just like we would. Like, what on earth is going on? Right? And we go up, and there's this bush that's burning, but not burning, but it's burning. And he's looking, and this voice comes out of the bush, and it says, Moses. And he goes, what on earth? The bush knows my name. Now, this is not a word-for-word literal translation of what is. I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of giving some story fluff. But... But this, but this bush speaks, hey, Moses. And then the bush makes a statement. It says, Moses, take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy ground. Now, if I was Moses, I would have looked at the bush and went, no, it's not. I was just here yesterday. It wasn't holy. In fact, look around. There's all these dead twigs and dead leaves and sheep stuff. I, this, this is not holy ground. Why did Moses have to take off his sandals? Because it was holy. How did the place become holy? Because it wasn't holy prior, presumably. Why is the place that he is standing holy ground? Because God showed up. Wouldn't it be interesting if holiness, holiness, by the way, in the Bible is never a negative. It's kind of got a a bad rap over the last few decades. It's like you say the word holiness and people go, ooh, I don't don't want that. Why? Because we think of legalism. We think of a list of do's and don'ts. That's not holiness. Now, if you're holy, you will do things and you won't do certain things. That's true. But holiness is not a list of do's and don'ts. Holiness, every time holiness is mentioned in the scripture, it's always positive. This isn't holiness. Oh, bummer. I don't get to do this. It's holiness. Wow, do you know what I get to participate in? The life of God. And holiness is not a drab. This is a woo, break out the diet, seven up. This is a parties. I mean, that's the idea biblically. That holiness is exciting, folks. Well, how am I going to become holy? I can't, because the best that I can pull off is filthy rags. So the only option I have to be holy is to embrace the one who is holy. And when the God who is holy shows up in a place that's unholy, called me, guess what he begins to do in my life? He makes me holy. And Paul is writing to that group of people who are pure and they are set apart for him, that God has done something in their life, that they are embracing him and holding tight to him, and God is changing them, and, and, and they're growing closer and closer to him, and, and wow, my life is not who I used to be. There's like this line that's been drawn in the sand, and I've stepped over it, and I'm a brand new creation. I'm a saint. Why? Because God has, has purified my life, and I am becoming holy as he is holy, not by my own effort, because hey, the best I can do is filthy rags. 
But somehow when I embrace the one who is holy, that which is not holy begins to become holy. And that's not a one-time deal. This is a, hey, I need to embrace him every single day for life and for godliness. I need to embrace him every single day so I can walk and live in holiness. I need to embrace him every single day so that this reality of holiness continues to mold and shape and change my life. We call that being a Christian. You're a saint. Now, maybe to take this one step further, it's interesting that that this word saint in the Greek is in, this adjective is in the dative. Now, the way this dative is specifically u- being used in this passage is that it suggests personal interest and so shows possession. In other words, these saints don't belong to themselves. Guess who they belong to? Jesus. Which should make sense to you, because if the only way you're going to be holy is to embrace the one who is holy, then we've got to belong to him. Hey, we've got to get tight with him. This whole idea is showing possession and ownership again. So just as Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ, we are saints in him. Now, Paul goes on and says, not only am I talking to the saints, this group of Christians who have the life of Jesus being demonstrated in this this town called Ephesus, but I'm also talking to this faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, again, it's not two groups. It's one single group. So, hey, if you're a saint, guess what? You're a faithful one. And if you're a faithful one, you're a saint. Uh, This word for faithful has the root word of faith or this idea of belief. In other words, the reason, uh, if you think about this, Christians are called believers. (gasps) I'm a believer. Do you know why we are called believers? This is going to, like, stun some of you. We are called believers... Because we are called to believe. I mean, that is amazing. Yeah, I'm called to have faith, which means I'm called to believe. That I have a belief in, in someone. That I have a trust in someone. <clears throat> that I really pressed and put my weight upon someone. That I don't just assume, it's not just a mental ascent. This is a lifestyle. I have literally altered my life to embrace something. My favorite illustration for this is a parachute. Uh, imagine this afternoon we take you up on a plane. And uh, we get you up a few thousand feet. And uh, <clears throat> I, I will open that side door and just say, look, at, look how cool this is. And as you're, as you're looking down, you're like, whoa, this is amazing. I come up behind you and I go. <clears throat> <clears throat> and you're like, ah. And I go, hold on one second. And I go and I grab a parachute and I huck it out. <laughs> so here you are. Here's the parachute. <clears throat> and I yell, out the, I yell out the airplane door, hey, do you believe in the parachute? And you look up, you're like, yes, it's right there. That's not going to help you. I <laughs> You can have belief. You can, you can have that kind of faith. That's fine. But you recognize all that's going to lead to is. <laughs> At least that's what I always hear in the cartoons, right? <clears throat> so we're not just talking a mental ascent. Yeah, there's a mental aspect of this. But do you know what this idea of faith or belief in Scripture really is? It's this idea of not just merely esteeming it with your mind. It's here, here you are and here's this parachute. And you go, okay, I believe in that. And so you start making your way over to the parachute, right? I don't know how else you do it in the air. But you make your way over. You grab the parachute. You put the parachute on, and you're holding on to it. Now, here's the question. 
<clears throat> if you're falling, how tight would you hold on to your parachute? Yes. Yeah, I don't know about you. I would I'd be like. <clears throat> Why would you hold on to the parachute? Because it's your means of salvation. It's your means of life and safety. Paul says later on in chapter 4 that we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's clothing language, but maybe a parachute's a good illustration. That I'm to put him on. Oh, so I'm to have faith and belief in Jesus. Yes. Oh, so I'm to think about Jesus. Yeah. But I'm to put him on. And I'm to hold tight to him. Why? Because he is the sole means of my life, of my salvation. That's this idea of belief and faith. And Paul says, I'm talking to this group of people who are the faithful. They're the ones who believe. But contained in this this word is also this idea of steadfastness or perseverance. And where is their faith in? Where does their faith belief lie in? Well, Paul says it's the faithful in Christ Jesus. That it's not just I have some mere faith or some belief. It's that my faith and belief is in Jesus Christ. That I'm going to live steadfast and persevere in Jesus. That it doesn't matter. Here's here's Abraham. And God gives Abraham a promise. And it says in Hebrews that Abraham had faith. It was counted to him as righteousness. Why? Because he had faith in the promise. Even though he didn't receive the promise. See, we are called to be steadfast and persevere in our faith in Christ Jesus, regardless of what we see around us. See, that is a Christian. And Paul says, I'm writing to this group who have the life of Jesus. They are holy and set apart. But yet they're the ones who have put their faith, their belief, their trust, that they are steadfast and they're holding tight to. They're pressing in and just grabbing a hold of Jesus for everything. Why? Because that's their position. It's in Jesus. Isn't it interesting that this whole prologue, verses 1 and 2, gives the undercurrent or the foundation for the rest of the book? What's the whole book about? Your position in Jesus. Hey, that Jesus is to be the central aspect of your life. He's to be the focus. He's to be the consumption. He's, hey, he's just to be, whew. hey, grab a hold of him. He's to be your life. Why? Because my position is in him, and I'm to live out of that position. That's what Paul is saying here. In a very simplistic sense, as he's saying, hey, hi, how are you? As he's saying, hey, hi, how are you? He's saying, do you realize that the essence of life is Jesus? Because as an apostle, I am of him. Hey, as a saint, you are in him. You have his life. That you are steadfast. And hey, your belief system is in Jesus. You're holding tight to him. Do you have that? Can your life be defined by Jesus Are you of him? Are you in him? One of my all-time favorite quotes is from Ian Thomas. Listen to what Ian Thomas said. He said, the Christian life can be explained only in terms of Jesus Christ. And if your life as a Christian can still be explained in terms of you, whether it be your willpower, your personality, your gift, your talent, your money, your courage, your scholarship, your dedication, your sacrifice, or your anything, then although you may have the Christian life, you are not yet living it. What is he saying? There's something supposed to be going on in our lives as believers that can only be described by Jesus. That somehow when the world looks upon your life, they go, I don't know how you're living like that. It must be Jesus. Do you know what we call someone who lives like that? Christian. A saint. A believer. The faithful in Christ Jesus. 
Can I just encourage you afresh this morning to make your life of Jesus, not just for Jesus? Hey, would you be a saint even now? Would you have the life of Christ? Would you allow him to purge all the impurities from your life? Would you let him begin to go into every crevice of your soul and only purify, set you apart, change you, make you holy and righteous like he is holy and righteous? Because the only option we have to be holy is to embrace the one who is holy. Hey, how's your belief system today? Is it merely a mental ascent? Oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Or have you put him on and are you holding tight to him for life and for godliness? Thank you for listening to this study from the book of Ephesians with Nathan Johnson. If you would like additional resources to help you build your life around Jesus, I encourage you to check out my website at deeperchristian.com. This podcast is the audio version taken from my video series in Ephesians. And if you'd like to view the video version of this study, you can do so by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash Ephesians. No, I am cheering you on as you build your life around and upon Jesus Christ. See you next time.